From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. We're about to talk to somebody who somehow got access to Kim Jong-un's inner circle. She is Anna Fifield, who is the Washington Post Bureau Chief in Beijing and also the author of the forthcoming book, The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. Those don't sound like your words, Anna. (laughs) They are not. They are all uh, some of the words that the North Koreans have used to describe Kim Jong-un over the years. She's going to be here in Seattle at Town Hall for an event on uh, June 16th. So, uh, first of all, Tell me about the the access you got. Who were you able to talk to? Right. Well, I set out to try and talk to every person who'd ever met Kim Jong-un, which was a big challenge at the beginning. But I found uh, I was living in Japan and I found the Japanese sushi chef who had worked in the North Korean royal family's household uh, while Kim Jong-un was a child and was actually kind of he described it as being Kim Jong-un's playmate at that time because Kim Jong-un had no friends. Uh, So, you know, a 40 something Japanese chef was kind of, you know, somebody new and novel, and they used to go out fishing together and play basketball and things like that. But I also tracked down his aunt and uncle, who had uh, been his guardians while he was at school in Switzerland as a teenager, and they had posed as his mother and father at that time. They uh, escaped from the regime and came to the United States about 20 years ago. So I uh, managed to find them and convince them to talk to me about what they knew about him as a child. I was able to kind of build up a portrait of the kind of upbringing he had and the training he had to become the leader of North Korea. And so he was trained. I mean, this is something that's been programmed into his uh, DNA. Yeah. So he, when he was eight years old, he was given a little general's uniform complete with, you know, brass buttons and epaulettes and things and told that he was going to be his father's successor, the great successor. Uh, and so from that day onwards, he really kind of grew up with this in mind. And he did get some training when he went to college. He went to the North Korean equivalent of West Point, the Kim Il-sung Military Academy in North Korea. Uh, and yeah, he was really groomed for this role his whole life. So I'm curious, he's known to be ruthless in that if somebody rubs him the wrong way, he just has them killed, apparently. You you teach that to an eight-year-old? Yeah, I mean, he's growing up in, in that system. That's what his father did and his grandfather did before him. And I think in their um, situation, they probably try to justify it to themselves and say, you know, this is what is required to keep our family in power. We we have to rule through fear and through favor. So the favor part is quite easy, but the fear is the really the way that he keeps the regime together and keeps the people from rising up uh, against him. There's this incredibly severe and brutal system of repression in North Korea that keeps everybody afraid. Is there any part of the train that teaches him that one way to keep the people from rising up is to make them happy? Uh, No, that's not part of the training. Um, That is something he is turning to a little bit now. He is trying to grow the economy and to give people a sense that their lives are getting better under him. But he's doing that very much his way and without letting up at all on the repression or um, any of the kind of police state side of things, because he knows that if the information were to flow in and people were to find out that, hey, you know, maybe this person is not the best person 
person to lead our country, that that would be the end of his regime. That I guess that's what confuses me about uh, about dictators. I, I guess in in the case of somebody who has been trained from a tender age in this system, you could cut him some slack. But he obviously has internet access. He knows there are other political systems out there that don't depend entirely on fear. Is he incapable of of understanding that? I think he probably understands it and understands it very well. You know, in 2011, the year that he took over, you know, that that whole year had been taken up by the Arab Spring, where he had been watching as, you know, uh, Middle Eastern dictatorships, especially ones where the leader wanted to pass down power to his son, were toppled or challenged across the entire Middle East. So I think that's probably a real lesson to him that, um, you know, that if he wants to stay in power, uh, as it was to Bashar al-Assad and, you know, other people around the world like that. We could say like Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia has adopted some of this, you know, fear and repression and keeping people afraid for themselves and their security is a, you know, very powerful way to, you know, Mm -hmm. a powerful deterrent to stop people from challenging him. So democracy is to be avoided at all costs. At all costs. I mean, it would be very hard for him to make the case that he, you know, who took power at 27 years old with no qualifications other than being born to this family, it would be very hard for him to say that he is the best person out of 25 million to run North Korea. So there's a fundamental insecurity there besides. That's right. I mean, a dictator is paranoid by nature, you know, waiting up, waking up every morning, wondering if he's going to be overthrown that day. And the biggest challenge to him comes from that inner circle, the elites in Pyongyang, the top brass in the military, the top officials in the Workers' Party. They're the ones who could form their own power base and who could challenge him and try to depose him. They are the ones that he has to keep on their toes all the time, like constantly fearing that they could be purged or even executed, as has happened in other situations. But that means there's no way he will ever give up nuclear weapons, doesn't it? Yeah, there's no way he's ever going to give up nuclear weapons. I think, you know, it's fanciful to think that he ever would uh, because he needs those for his security to fend off the United States and to, you know, have this very credible nuclear option that he could use if he was attacked. But also he needs that to show strength within North Korea and especially, I think, to show the people uh, in the military there that they, you know, that they have a strong military and that their power has been getting stronger under him. So, yeah, he's no, they are his security. He's not giving up those weapons. Well, then <laughs> what are we negotiating over here? Yeah. uh, Well, I mean, it depends on what we are negotiating for, right? If the goal is complete denuclearization, I think that is fanciful. But maybe there's a midway step along the way that that we can all live with. You know, maybe they can be, he can be convinced just to keep them under lock and key and to not actually use them. I mean, that was kind of uh, inconscionable in the United States right now, but that's something that maybe China could live with and that people could get around like other nuclear states that have, that do not use their nuclear weapons. I mean, that is basically what Kim Jong-un wants. He's been trying to prove through this diplomacy and everything he's been doing in the last year that he is a responsible leader of a nuclear armed state just like France or Israel or India, for that matter. Huh. But I'm guessing you think he is not. I mean, do you think he's crazy? Would would he misjudge and actually fire off one of those things? 
I do not think he's crazy. And the proof of that is the fact that he's still in power seven and a half years in. You know, the odds were really stacked against him. He had, you know, none of the kind of propaganda and the mythology around him. He was only 27 years old in this regime that uh, prizes seniority and age. So the fact that he's managed to survive and to get rid of any rivals uh, shows that he has been very calculating and ruthless uh, through the path of his leadership. So I think, yeah, he is not going anywhere quickly. Um, But I think that he had some trouble during 2017 and and the advisors around him had some trouble kind of interpreting what President Trump was meaning when he was talking about fire and fury and calling him a nut job and things, because this is not something that the North Koreans had ever experienced before, and they didn't quite know how to interpret President Trump. I think they've wised up quite a lot since then and have learned how to kind of play him in a way. To play him. So you think they are playing him? Yeah, I mean, I think they have been playing him in terms of, you know, some of the flattery that we've seen coming from Kim Jong-un, the love letters, as President Trump has described Mm -hmm. them. It taps into, you know, what Trump wants to hear. Trump has responded to that. Do you think Trump really buys that? I mean, Trump must have been briefed by his intelligence people on what you know about his background, the fact that this guy has been indoctrinated in ruthlessness and that he's never going to give up those nuclear weapons unless we actually destroy them. So... I mean, do you think Trump believes those those uh, suck up letters? I think President Trump uh, loves flattery, and I think he believes in his uh, skills as a negotiator. I think he does believe that if he can, uh, you know, he is the one who can seal a deal with these people. I mean, I don't think that's actually going to happen, but I do th- I do think it has worked with President Trump. I mean, even the fact that the North Koreans didn't just send him a letter, but they sent him this like comical extra big letter so mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, he could stand there in the Oval Office with Kim Jong-un's uh, emissary and say, look at this huge letter I got. So I'm trying to figure out then if this is so, – so is this good? I mean, does the Trump approach of uh, – this approach of mutual flattery – I mean, if I know a lot of people hate it, but if it achieves the goal of keeping this guy from firing off his weapons, that would be a good thing, right? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly very unconventional. And from both sides, President Trump is an unconventional American president, but Kim Jong-un is very different from his father when it comes to leading North Korea as well. So I think the fact that these two have developed some kind of rapport and the fact that they both still really want this diplomatic process. I mean, both sides are making very positive noises about continuing talks, though it's not quite clear how they'll get there. So I think that they do both have an investment in this and that maybe they can somehow uh, make some progress on this age-old problem. Because, I mean, the simple fact is that the traditional way of dealing with North Korea has not worked. Like, North Korea has not responded to sanctions and threats and uh, has not stuck to any deals in the past. So maybe it is time to be unconventional and think outside the box when it comes to North Korea. So since Kim Jong-un's main priority is keeping himself safe and in power, um, all he has to do, all we have to do is pretend to believe that he's powerful and promise never to invade him. And he can continue pretending to be powerful. But in the meantime, we make sure that in reality, his nukes are 
completely defused and useless so that the, you know, there can be this charade without any real danger behind it. I mean, you could say charade, but also maybe it's possible that things would change through the course of this process. You know, a lot of things we've seen over the past couple of years have been very unpredictable. But maybe if there was more engagement with North Korea instead of just isolating them, then maybe we could bring about some change in North Korea. Like maybe uh, if there was more freedom and economic investment, if there were foreign investors going into North Korea, maybe that would encourage North Koreans mm. to make some change for themselves or like, you know. Do they really have the power to do that? I mean, if if democracy is the worst case scenario for him, what would motivate him to, to allow any change unless there was, I mean, I, I, I assume at, one, at some point North Koreans could become so desperate and hungry that they have nothing to lose and just rise up and, and revolt. But short of that, what, what would change his mind? There is now much more private enterprise and kind of homegrown entrepreneurs in North Korea and people who are fending for themselves, earning their own living, you know, independent of the state and feeding themselves independent of the state, which is a really big change from how North Korea had been run for the previous decades. So this has given people more of their own agency. And I think we should be encouraging this. And certainly China is encouraging this. China wants to continue edging Kim Jong-un down to the pro, you know, the, the way of economic reform and opening up even slightly. So, I mean, who knows what might happen along that, um, along that process. But I think that is very much the direction in which mm. we should be heading. What about tourism? I mean, I'd be, I've been to uh, Iran and to Cuba. I'd be very interested in visiting North Korea, but I'm a little, I don't know if I trust them. I'm worried that, you know, they gin up some reason to uh, uh, arrest me as a hostage or something. I mean, would you advise traveling or trying to travel to North Korea? Uh, well, I mean, as somebody who has traveled there a lot of times, you know, I find it fascinating and think it is the kind of place it's interesting to see. But I've always been there as a journalist and not on an American passport. So yeah. I'm in a different situation. But I think uh, for people who have gone in as tourists in the past, you know, there have been situations where Americans have been taken, but there are also many Americans who have not been taken, who have behaved themselves like Boy Scouts after church, as someone was described mm -hmm. it to me, uh, and they have been fine. But so I guess it's a personal risk issue. Uh, having said that, the U.S. government does not allow Americans to travel to North Korea at the moment. Uh, you have to apply for special permission if you have an American passport, and that is not being granted for tourism. So it's kind of a, um, not an issue for Americans mm. at How this How did Dennis stage. Rodman get in? <laughs> yeah, Dennis Rodman hasn't been since these uh, these changes were instituted. So these new restrictions were brought in after Otto Warmbier, the Ohio oh, student, right. was uh, taken in North Korea. So, yeah, so Dennis Rodman predates that. So, Anna, just your, your gut feeling, This uh, does this end well or does it end badly? Well, it depends on who it's for. I mean, at the moment, there is no sign that Kim Jong-un is anything but in complete control of North Korea, that he seems very confident. Uh, he seems to have consolidated his leadership. So for him, things are looking relatively good, I think. I mean, he doesn't seem to need to worry about his regime ending anytime soon, though these things are often unpredictable. But for the 25 million people of North Korea, obviously that's a bad thing. There is no relief inside for them in terms of um, being freed from this very repressive, very controlling regime that, you know, 
has an impact in every single aspect of their lives. So the prognosis for them is not so great right now. Does he understand that there is a line that no matter who is president, I'm pretty sure that American policy would be that once you have the ability to fuel a functioning nuclear weapon that could hit the continental United States, that it will be blown up on the launch pad. He does. Yeah, he does realize that there is a line and he has been careful to, you know, all of these missiles he was uh, firing throughout 2017. He was very careful to shoot them straight up. So they came straight down, that they were not going anywhere actually near American territory. There might be cold comfort, but it shows that he is calibrating his threads. And I think he's been doing that more recently as well. We've had a couple of rocket launches over the last uh, few months weeks, but they have been very much short range, not ballistic missiles. He is very careful in how he sends those messages because he knows, yeah, that if he misjudges, the cost for him could be very grave indeed. Anna Fifield is the Washington Post Beijing Bureau Chief and also the author of The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un, and she'll be at Seattle's Town Hall Sunday, June 16th, 7.30 p.m. Anna, thank you very much. Great. Thank you for having me on. I'm really looking forward to coming to Seattle. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News? You can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.